Mac Power Users, Episode 38, all about iTunes. Welcome back to another episode of the Mac Power Users Podcast. I'm Katie Floyd. Along with me is David Sparks. How are you, David? I'm doing well, Katie. Thank you for asking. All right. So um, all about iTunes this episode. I'm, I'm afraid this may be the show that never ends. <laughs> you never know. <laughs> um, kind of a, a, a broad topic after the very narrow markdown, multi-markdown topic we did last episode. Yeah, but it's an important one to all Mac users because everybody loves their iTunes and their iPods and iPhones, and it seems increasingly to become the hub of everything Apple. It is becoming more and more the hub of everything Apple, and I've I've wondered over the years whether iTunes is really an appropriate name for the software anymore, but I guess maybe at, at some point we're, we're beyond that and we're stuck with it. I don't think anything's changing anytime soon. Yeah, because it's it's no longer just about music. It's music and movies and books and apps and and ringtones and TV shows and, and PDFs and really what, whatever you want to organize in there now. And I also think that, you know, people who don't get obsessed with computers have just kind of learned at this point that if they have an iPad or an iPod, they manage it through iTunes. And if you tried to change that, um, it, it's a world of hurt. Yeah. It would collectively blow all their minds. So I think we're, we're here. I wish it was a little more efficient. It seems to me like one of the sluggy, sluggier compute uh, applications on the Mac sometimes. Well, and there seems to be a lot of bloat in iTunes. Um, if you've ever had to download an iTunes update, you know, it's it's several hundred megabytes, and I think it's even worse if you're doing it on the PC. Yeah, but, you know, there are some tricks to iTunes, so let's get started with them. Okay. Let's talk about the iTunes library, because there's this iTunes application that Apple will regularly update. It, it used to be part of iLife, and now it's just this free-for-all standalone application. I don't even think you get it on a CD anymore, do you? It doesn't come in as, and I guess I guess the iPod packaging isn't even big enough now to support a CD. Yeah, did you see that thing? Um, I think Gruber linked to it. Somebody recently linked to a thing where they had all these applications on floppy, and iTunes was like 126 floppies or something. <laughs> I'm going to put a link in the show notes for it. It's very funny. Wow. Yeah, it it would be up there. I just did an iTunes update not too long ago, and it was it it took a while. Um, so there's this iTunes, the application that that updates itself regularly, but that's that's not even really where all the good stuff is. All, all the stuff that you want, you need, and that you need to maintain uh, is deep inside this iTunes library, and and that's really uh, the piece that I'm I'm more concerned about. At least initially, uh, it's the piece that I relocated when I moved from my old Mac to my new Mac recently. Okay. So you're, you're talking about the data files, the data files, and that can be a pain to deal with if you don't keep that library organized or at least know where all the pieces are. Well, you know, going back to the old days when we were managing photos or music or whatever, we'd have a series of nested folders somewhere in our hard drives. And then we would link that to whatever program we used to play it. And I think even when we first started using iTunes, I, I know at least I tried to hold on to that mirage for a little while where I kept my music. And of course, back in those days, it was really before the iTunes store took off. So the music you had was the few CDs that you had ripped and it was almost manageable, but somewhere along the line, things just get out of control and you just accept that you need to let iTunes take care of that for you. And you can do that in the preferences. 
Uh, yeah. So the first thing I always suggest that people do in their preferences and, and their let's talk kind of about the general rule and then let's talk about the exceptions, I guess, to the rule. But assuming that you're running with a large enough hard drive that you can manage to keep all of your iTunes data on your main hard drive. Um, one of the things that I recommend for the easiest management of everything is to let iTunes keep that media folder organized. And you can set that in your iTunes preferences under the advanced tab. There's a, there's a little option there where you can check two boxes and one is keep iTunes media folder organized. The other is copy files to iTunes media folder when adding to the library. And then it will also tell you where the location is of your iTunes media folder, which by default is usually uh, in your users folder inside the music subfolder inside an iTunes folder. And then there's a separate folder called iTunes music. Yeah, so when you're setting up your Mac new and you've got a big enough hard drive to manage your your media files, you just go with the default location and you check those two boxes under advanced and then it's done for you. You know, when you import a new CD, it automatically copies it to a folder and there creates the subfolders and they're not cryptic. If you look in those folders, you can see the artist names and find the tracks if you want to copy them out and put them somewhere else. But generally, it's a great idea to have iTunes just take care of that for you. And by having it keep it organized, you'll always know that everything is in that one location, which is good when we later talk about when you need to move that data file or back it up. It's nice having it all in one place. So I say just accept it and let iTunes take care of it for you. Uh, do you can you think of any case why you wouldn't want to do that? Yeah, and we'll talk about those later. There there are some instances, and I, I don't let iTunes manage everything for me. Okay, well, I do, so that's good. I'm interested to hear about your opinions on that. Uh, this is also the window where if you want to to move that data file, once it outgrows your, your laptop hard drive and you want to put it on an external drive, this is also the same place that you'd, you'd move that location. And we can, I guess we're going to talk about that later though, aren't we? Yeah, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Now, is, is there any reason that people should consider having multiple iTunes libraries? Because it's, it's possible to do. Yeah, absolutely. When you're in a family, sometimes it makes sense to, uh, have different libraries, uh, in my family, you don't, you don't want the um, gosh, I don't even know the Justin Bieber getting <laughs> getting caught up with your felonious monk. Uh, no, that's not acceptable. But uh, okay. I, I didn't even know who this Justin Bieber guy or Bieber. What's I don't even know how you, Bieber maybe. Yeah, I didn't know this guy until very recently. Fortunately, my kids aren't interested. But uh, there is uh, Hannah Montana, and oh. uh, you know, and then my wife's a big '80s fan, so you know, she's got Duran Duran, which I can't argue with because they kind of like that too. But so we've got an interesting eclectic library, but if you wanted to uh, have a situation where each person had their own separate library, you could do that. And you know the trick about how to load different libraries, right? I believe, if they haven't changed it in multiple versions, is that you just hold down the option key as iTunes starts Ex up. Exactly. When you hold down the option key and start iTunes, it gives you a prompt that lets you pick the library that you're going to load. So if you really want to do that, I mean, you know, I was thinking, it's funny because if anybody followed my, um, what is it? Ping or um, uh, I followed your ping. I bought something you bought the other day. Oh, did you? Well, see, it's very likely that I didn't buy it oh. <laughs> because you know my whole family uses the same account. But so it's kind of interesting when you look at mine. It's like uh, you know my wife just bought a bunch of stuff from Glee, and that's not really my favorite music. But hey, you know. So if you wanted to have it where iTunes just recommended stuff that was truly your own music, you could have separate libraries, and also that's very useful. If you uh, have a laptop with a small hard drive and then you've got a big iTunes library at home on the big hard drive. So, you know, you just put the really important stuff 
you know, you know, you, you're John Coltrane, you're Thelonious Monk, you're Charlie Parker. That stuff goes on the laptop. So wherever you're at, that is available to you. And then you put the extra stuff, you know, uh, maybe Jerry Mulligan. That stuff kind of goes on the uh, the big drive at home. And then you can just hold down the option key and you can pick which library to load depending where you're at. And Apple has made some of this a little bit easier and with home sharing and things like that. And we'll, we'll get into that a little more in a separate section. But doesn't it, some of this take care of itself if you're using separate user accounts on your Mac? Well, it absolutely does because in those cases, it's going to have a separate home folder and it's going to go to a separate library entirely when you're logged in to the separate accounts. So if you completely want to segregate those iTunes music folders, which I might be inclined to do, you know, if, if you've got a large hard drive and you've got the space, I mean, heck, keep all the kids' stuff, keep their email, keep their junk, keep all that stuff on their account. Don't let it touch my stuff. Well, we're going to talk about this later about sharing. But, you know, when I first started using oh, iTunes. share well. Well, when I first started using iTunes, they had this deal where, you know, you had to buy the music and you could only use it in your account. And, you know, it's kind of crazy because I can go buy a CD. And I'm not a music thief. But, I mean, if I buy a CD, I want my wife to be able to listen to it or my kids. And when you buy it, used to be when you bought on iTunes, it only worked with the devices registered under your account. So we just have one big library with everything in it, and we've kept it that way. Even though now, with the fact that a lot of the tracks you can buy unlocked for the $1.29, uh, we wouldn't probably need that if we wanted to s- separate. But at this point, it's kind of fun. I like to see what my kids are listening to. And, and Daisy does have some pretty good music taste, so once in a while she'll download something I really like. So it all works out, but uh, it is uh, it is available to you if you want to split it up. Yeah. Well, let's let's move into that topic a little bit. Let, let's talk a little bit about iTunes library sharing, and especially maybe now in households where you know other stuff is taking up that hard drive. You know, you you talked a little bit about you know at some point when your iTunes library gets too big, moving it off the internal hard drive and moving it somewhere else. Um, you know, is is something like is this where network attached storage comes to mind? Yeah, and I don't think Apple's ever really done a good job of making that easy. You know, this is this is what. <laughs> Time capsule could have been this. They they could have made this ninety nine dollar, this two ninety nine, some kind of device to make this work if they want. They should just it should work, but you know if they had to, they could have just made a device to make this work. Well, I mean the hardware's there, so you know we're kind of jumping ahead. So we talked about locating the library on your hard drive, but under that advanced tab, you can change the location of your library. Or a way I've done it in the past is just take the existing iTunes folder with all the music and the library file and all the metadata and just copy it to a new location. For instance, I've put it on the Drobo drive at my house. Once you've done that, there's a freestanding iTunes library there. So then you open it up in iTunes by just double clicking the iTunes library file and then it opens up and then you just go into the advanced settings and set that that's the location and it works for me. Have you ever had a problem doing it that way? No, I really haven't. So, and from there on, it it usually remembers the last library that you've that you've connected it to, and then you can delete if you've you know once you've made sure that your your move has has function you know happened okay. Uh, you can delete the data from your internal drive, assuming of course you've got that data backed up somewhere. Yeah, but if you do that, you want to make sure that you get the location change into the advanced tab, um, and um, you know, then you're good. And so at that point, you've got an externally located library. So the question becomes, great, so a Drobo drive is attached by a FireWire drive, uh, FireWire connection, so I've got a great connection there. Um, but what do I want to do if I want to um, 
put that on a network drive. So let's pretend you've got a, um, a time capsule at your house. So it's a wireless connection and you put the library on there. So you'd have to have the drive mounted and have to look there and find it. And in theory that would work. I know some people that do work with that, but the problem is you've got this wireless connection. That's kind of dodgy. And, um, you know, if multiple people access it at the same time, you've got problems. I mean, it, it just doesn't work that well. No. And in fact, we should, we should probably step back one step because changing the location of that music folder, whether you change it through the advanced tab and the preferences or whether you physically drag and drop, you know, from the finder to change the location, that's easy enough to do. But what do you do if you're not quite sure, you know, if you've been using iTunes for a while and you're not a hundred percent sure that, you know, all of your music that's in iTunes is really in that iTunes media folder location. That's kind of where consolidating the libraries comes into mind. Yes, I, good I point. I skipped that. You, want, you did. Yeah. yeah cover I, that. Well, it, especially if you, you know, use iTunes for a while and then decide, no, you know what? I, I want to let iTunes manage this. I, I want to consolidate, you know, I want to let iTunes do its thing. You could end up in a situation where, you know, let's say for the first year that you used iTunes, you just associated the music that was already on your hard drive. You know, maybe the 20 or so DVDs or CDs that you ripped yourself. Um, you know, you associated that music with iTunes. iTunes went out and found it and it, it linked to that music. And, you know, maybe that music is in your documents folder for whatever reason, because that's where you, that's where it was when you originally ripped it and you originally installed iTunes. And if you come from Windows, that's very likely because they put everything in the documents folder. All right. But as time goes on, you know, you, you check out iTunes, you go into that little advanced tab, you download stuff through, through iTunes and you say, yeah, keep my iTunes folder organized. Yeah. Copy, copy stuff to that iTunes media folder when I add it to the library. And from that point forward, maybe you do have stuff. Maybe you have the majority of your stuff in that uh, user folder, in that music folder, in that iTunes folder, in that iTunes music folder. Um, but maybe not everything. So from at some point, you've got all the stuff you bought. You got all the stuff that you ripped into iTunes in that folder. But you still have maybe these 15, 20, you know, original CDs that you started out with, you know, somewhere buried in the documents folder that you, you moved over from an old PC somewhere. And if you took my advice and just copied it over... That stuff gets lost. Yeah, and the next time you go to play that song, you end up with a little circle with an exclamation point in it saying, yeah, I don't know where to find that stuff. Um, So before you move this folder, even if you're pretty darn sure that you know where everything is, um, what I recommend that people do is that they consolidate their iTunes music folder. Um, Or or they let iTunes go through and they consolidate um, all of their iTunes music. So Apple changed the way that you did this a little bit, and I think iTunes version 10, and they, they moved this around. So it's a feature called Consolidate Library, but it's hidden now. So what you do is you go into the File menu, and under Library, there's a drop-down menu that says Organize Library. And it's now a checkbox that says Consolidate Files. And what this does is it puts copies of all the media files that are used by iTunes in the iTunes music folder, but it still leaves the original files in their current location. So unfortunately what I would prefer to do is if it actually give you an option to move those files, but you know, whatever. Well, I think Apple wants you to manually delete those. They don't want to wipe out somebody's library. Yeah, that's probably better. Some people aren't going to realize that copies were put there and they're going to freak out. Yeah, I guess that's true. 
Um, but that's that's what you should do first before you do anything to move your iTunes uh, files is to make sure that you consolidate that library just in case so that you know that when you move it, you're getting everything. Yeah. There's also a new feature under that organized library folder because iTunes and in, in the more recent versions, because iTunes is now more than music, now it's movies and TV shows and podcasts and audiobooks and and things like that. They also have a reorganize button in there where you can reorganize the files in the folder iTunes Music, which will then create subfolders called music and movies and TV shows and podcasts and audiobooks, which may make it a little easier for you to to visualize things once it's in there and and uh, uh, jumping ahead a little bit, one of the tips that I have when when backing up things is I typically don't include podcasts, for example, in my you know regular time machine backups because that's something that's constantly changing. So it may make it a little easier to find those files and exclude them. Yeah, and so you know, and then now jumping back to the network attached, attached storage issue, there's a lot of people who talk about you know, can I put the iTunes library in Dropbox or a time capsule or some kind of wireless or internet based solution. And yeah, you can, Yeah, you can, but it's really not that useful unless it's just one person. And, you know, for instance, um, when you have multiple people in the same household trying to access the library at the same time, it really doesn't work that way. You're better off, um, polling songs because they've got the home sharing now, which is really nice. Uh, pulling versions or mini versions of the library onto the individual computers. And I kind of fault Apple for this. I think it should be easier to have a network solution where you've got one library and everybody can just access that. I mean, as it is, you've got to make multiple copies. I mean, uh, in my house, for instance, we have the home sharing turned on. So, and we have, there's an iMac that's kind of the family iMac and it's got the Drobo attached and it's got the, you know, humongous library on it. Well, my wife and my daughter on their computers they'll pull down the movie files or the song files that they particularly want on their Macs. So now you've got that storage duplicated. You know, why can't we have a way for them to easily just have that sourced library and everybody to work in it at once, but it just, it's just not there. Yeah, that's true. Um, and one of the things you can do, although you still are getting duplicate files to facilitate that a little bit is if you do have one central Mac, you know, whether it's the family Mac or, or whether you've got perhaps a Mac mini set up, you know, as a centralized home server to some degree. You can set up uh, playlists or smart playlists or different ways to organize your library to make those a little easier to find. Um, And then one thing that I would suggest doing is if you are going to have one massive library and then say you've got, you know, a couple of laptops or you you want subsets of that library, then you can just use home sharing to go in and just pull those specific you know, playlists of your best songs or songs by this particular artist over to populate, you know, those, those smaller subsets of those libraries. Yeah. And, and don't get me wrong. I think home sharing is a great feature. In fact, it replaces, um, in my mind, a whole category of software that had existed before there was all this iTunes library syncing software. And most of it is, is actually still more powerful than home sharing. I mean, one of the ones that I used to use was called tune ranger. And you could put it in and it would say, it would compare libraries and say, oh, it looks like you bought, you know, something new in this library and you compare the laptop to the iMac, for example, and it would make them synchronize and add up. Or you could say, I want anything that's new on this library to come down to the, to the Mac book and it would do it over your home network or over Bonjour. It was very easy to run a synchronization and it would even synchronize some of the ratings and some of the metadata. So there's some, some pretty powerful tools out there if you want to go there. But in my case, since they've got this home sharing thing going, 
I've pretty much turned all that off, and we've just got you know the big library um, with the with the iMac, and people pull down specific uh, songs or p- portions of that library and put them on their individual Macs. Well, the other thing you can always do is if you don't want to actually pull down the music to your songs, is you can always stream. Yeah. Um, if you've got another Mac that's always on inside the the iTunes preferences, you can turn on sharing. You can share your library over a local network. <laughs> this is particularly fun if you're on college campus sometimes. Yeah. Um, and uh, you can say share my library, and you can also tell it to look for shared libraries. Uh, if you are on a particularly large network, you, depending on what you have in your library and whether you want to share, you may or may not want to require a password in there. Um, or you can share selected playlists. And, you know, again, if you do have that one centralized server or whatnot in your home, you know, share them out and, and you can stream instead of duplicate. Yeah, I had the same experience last year at Macworld in my hotel room. I oh, yeah. turned on iTunes and all of a sudden there were like 12 libraries available to me because <laughs> uh, all these Mac users in the same hotel. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about our first sponsor. Let's talk, speaking of CDs and DVDs, let's talk about Smile. Okay. Well, Smile has got some great software uh, that's on sale right now for Mac Power users listeners called Disc Label. And Disc Label is a media labeling software. It covers everything, the cases, the discs, everything you need to put together your media files. So we're at the holidays. We just had Thanksgiving. I'm sure everybody's got some, some great photos I just made a fantastic movie trailer over our Thanksgiving festivities. And uh, I'm going to put it on DVD along with a picture slideshow and send it out to all my relatives. And you bet I'm going to use this label because I want the labels to look good as well. If you're going to spend this much time and effort on this thing, you know, you want the whole package to look right. So you can get disc label for that. It's got built in uh, features. It's got built in artwork. You can add your own and you can get it for just twenty four ninety five right now. If you go to smilesoftware.com slash MPU. Yeah, that's 30% off, and that offer is good until December 31st. But wait, there's more. Smile is giving away one of their productivity suites, which is, this is, in my opinion, one of the best software packages to have on your Mac. It is PDF Pen Pro. It is, you know, disk label, text expander, uh, page sender. It's all the great Smile software, uh, and it's valued at over 100 bucks. and they're just giving it away for free to a lucky Mac Power users listeners. And all you got to do is create a disk label or a, a set of disk labels, whatever you want to do. Using disk label, you can download and use the demo version if you want, if you're, you're hoping to win a copy of disk label through this promo. Uh, check out our website. We've got all the instructions there. But send us a PDF copy, preferably, or a JPEG of your design via email. You can send that to feedback at MacPowerUsers.com between now and December 3rd. So you've got to get on this. And uh, we're going to get in contact with the Smile folks. We're going to judge your entries. One person is going to get a productivity suite. And depending on the type of entries we get, uh, we reserve the right to throw out a couple of other prizes, which may be individual software licenses. So uh, we're going to announce the winner on our next episode, which is going to be released on or about Sunday, December 12th. So um, get to making those labels, and I can't wait to see what you come up with. Yeah, you could hit the mother load if you win this thing. Oh, I know. Smile Software is some of the best software on the Mac. So make yourself a label. You don't even have to buy the app. If you want to, we don't care if it says uh, demo on it. Uh, that's fine. Just uh, download it, make some cool labels, send them in, and uh, I look forward to seeing your entries. 
And uh, once again, thanks to Smile for their sponsorship of the show. Okay, so let's import music. You don't just buy all your music from Uncle Steve? No, I don't. In fact, I don't buy much. I, I usually buy CDs. I'm still old school that way, although I'm becoming less and less so. Just so uh, It's just so easy to buy it on iTunes. I buy very few CDs. I'll, I'll buy a handful of CDs. Well, I know, maybe, maybe I bought two CDs last year. But I do buy a fair amount of stuff from the Amazon MP3 store, but we'll talk about that later. Yeah, well, ever since they took away the, um, the DRM stuff, then it's a lot easier to, for me to buy the stuff from iTunes. Yeah, that was a big help. But okay, but you do have CDs, and, and you're importing them. And uh, as old guys, we've got a lot of CDs from the old days. Um, and so we want to import them and include them in our iTunes library. So the, the where you do this is under the general settings. And it's got a section there that says, when you insert a CD, you know, then it's got a very series of menus you can do. And uh, I I just have it automatically add it to iTunes and inject, eject the uh, CD because there's only one thing I'm going to be doing with the audio CD when it goes into my Mac. It's going to be put in iTunes. I never play them. I just import them and stick them out. So thankfully there's a setting for that. So you don't have to even stop to think about it. And then you talk about the import settings and that's something that really is a, almost a religious war, depending on who you ask. <laughs> um, so, uh, the, you know, there's different import settings and I'm not an, an expert on this. Uh, and I'm sure I'm going to hear about it, but uh, I use, if you look under that import settings, there's a couple windows and the one called settings uh, uses iTunes plus, which is 256 kilobytes, which is pretty good. And I think it sounds great. Um, I can definitely hear a difference between 128 and 256. And, and just to make clear, I just opened the window. It's 128 mono or 256 stereo. Right. Um, some people can't, you know, I've, got friends who cannot hear a difference. And if you can't hear a difference and you want to make it the 128, that's fine because uh, that will take less space on your hard drive because you know, the higher bit rate, the more data you've got to store and it takes more space on your iPhone and your devices as well. So I think 256 is pretty great. So that's what I use, uh, but you yeah. can also customize that if you want. I, I, I don't have them import my CDs as soon as I stick them in because sometimes I, I change these settings. And that that's my one gripe is Apple, if you're listening. I, I want you to let me save some presets and, and because I have different settings. I have one setting when I encode the podcast. I have one setting that I use for audiobooks. I have one setting that I use for music CDs. So, you know, and sometimes I have to go back in and, and flop through my settings. So I don't necessarily want it to automatically import my CDs because it, it may be different CD settings when I want to put them in, but you know, whatever. But when I am importing an audio CD, I, I do also use the iTunes plus format. I uh, previously imported all my CDs at 128, And then about mm, year and a half, two years ago, I went back through and started re-importing them at 256. Now, one of the ways that you can kind of avoid doing that same thing again um, is uh, uh, my uncle, who's a, a little bit of an audiophile, has imported all of his using the Apple lossless encoder. But of course now he's just got gigabytes upon gigabytes yeah. of music. And that's, I think that's the next level. That's overkill for me. Yeah. For me too, because I really, my ear doesn't hear that much of a difference. And so well, I'm okay yeah. with 256. And, and his thought process, and it makes a lot of sense is that storage is cheap and I'm future proofing. Yeah. And it's only yeah. going to get cheaper. Yeah. And I'm, I'm saving some space, but I'm also future proofing. I think my first hard drive was like 10, 10 megabytes or something yeah. hard drive, you know? So, 
So in 10 years, we'll look back and say, why would we just do 256? That's a, you know, a waste of time. So right. do what you want. But the, uh, the, the nice thing is, although they don't have a way to automatically save presets, iTunes has a remarkable number of particular settings. So no matter what your desire is of how big you want the files to be, uh, there's a lot there for you. So you can go in those import settings and, and crank it up as much as you want. The, the nice thing about the import and export autom- or eject the CD automatically is when you're doing one of these jobs where you're catching up and you're putting a bunch of CDs and you've got a big stack of them, it's nice because you just stick it in the iMac and you walk away and the next time you're walking by, you'll see a CD sticking out of it and you'll say, oh, okay, pull it out, stick the next one in and then move on with your day. It saves a lot of the you know clicky clicks that you do when you're trying to manually import all these CDs. Yeah, and and when I am having one of those sessions where I've got a stack of CDs that I'm importing at a time, I will go in and and change my settings so that I don't have to do that. Um, One thing I will point out, though, is when I I went through this process of changing mine from 128 to 256 that I thought was helpful, um, is that iTunes, most of the time, I would say about 95% accuracy, it popped up a little window um, because it does go out. uh, What's the database name? CBVD or CDDB or something like that? Yeah. Um, and it, it's fairly accurate when it goes out and tries to find the track names of these CDs. And it will say, it looks like you've previously imported these songs. What do you want to do? Do you want to overwrite them? Do you want to keep the duplicates? Um, so I was able to overwrite the songs as opposed to having a whole bunch of duplicates. So that was helpful. Yes. And uh, so then once you've got your your music imported that way, um, sometimes you do need to play with the metadata a little bit, um, like album artwork. For some reason, I think once I got the iPhone is when I started to really pay attention to the album artwork because I like it. To pop. Oh, because there's nothing you can stand more than that little broken album artwork symbol. Yeah, but it's not that hard. I mean, there's some applications out there to um, to auto-fetch it. Do you use any of those? Um, I've gotten a few that I've I've tried. I think Song Genie is one. I've gotten a few um, you know, demos and samples from Macworld. Um, I found that you know iTunes will go out and get some of them for you, yeah. and that's that's done a lot of it for me. Yeah, and then when you get in a real jam, um, I just use Google Images. If you just type Google Images, in fact, if you use LaunchBar, activate LaunchBar, type GI, which gets up Google Images, and then type um, you know Harry Potter, you know disc one, and then you'd be or album art, and as a search, and I guarantee you it'll come up pretty quickly, and then. You activate the tracks or the series of tracks that need the album art in iTunes and hit Command-I to open information. And you can just drag the album art from your desktop right into the little album art window and click OK, and then you've got album art. So it's kind of time-intensive to go through that, but if if there are certain ones that you want, then that's a good way to do it. And it works also with, with PDF books and all the other various and movies and the other types of media that you've got in your iTunes library. One thing I've done that has helped me speed up that process significantly um, is I went in and I created a smart playlist that's called, I call it no artwork. You can call it whatever you want. Um, But it's just, you go in and you create a smart playlist and and mine just is very simple. It says match the following rule. And it says um, the first criteria is has artwork. And the second criteria is, is false. So anything that doesn't have artwork. And I, I check the box that says live updating. So as I import things that doesn't have artwork, it does. Um, and then I will set it to sort by album because one of the things you can do is if it's, if you've got, a, chances are if you've got one song, you've got an entire album that doesn't have artwork associated with it. So tell so me, you, I'm sorry. 
Oh, so tell me, Katie, you were, you were talking earlier about Amazon. Uh, tell me how you use Amazon. I, I actually, my my first stop is iTunes, and I'll look at iTunes. But if I, I look at it, it's like, hmm, that, that's a little more expensive than I want to spend. Um, I'll almost always go to Amazon and, and see. And I found a lot of instances where um, uh, Amazon's prices are a couple of bucks cheaper than iTunes. And it's, it's real simple. Uh, you go to Amazon, and you go to their MP3 download section, uh, and you type in the name of the album that you want, and, and they, their selection seems pretty comparable to iTunes. Yeah. Well, I've got a few uh, friends and listeners who I will call the enablers. You know oh, okay. who you are. And uh, I've got this thing about 1950s bebop jazz. And once in a while, somebody sends me an email and says, you know, Amazon has this album for $2 today. So I go and get them. And uh, it's really painless to put them in. Although I have to admit, when I really want to buy something, usually I just search it in iTunes, and usually it's there, and I just get it. So, well, you can. It's it's worth checking Amazon, especially for some of the older items and some of the back catalog. And the first time you download from Amazon, or the first time you download on a on a new computer, I had to do this recently with my MacBook Air. Um, it will prompt you to um, download the Amazon downloader or whatever it's called. It's a very small download, um, but it will manage the files and. Uh, it's set to automatically, you know, you can set and it will automatically download the files and it will down- automatically import them into iTunes and they'll be properly named and they'll have proper artwork and everything. And it's pretty painless. Um, the only thing that it doesn't do that I don't like is that after it imports the songs into iTunes, which because I've got my iTunes folder set to already copies those fo- that, that stuff into the iTunes library, um, is that it then keeps a separate folder called Amazon MP3 in my music folder. So I've got those songs duplicated, but I just set a Hazel script to watch it and move those items to the trash. Yeah. And it's funny cause I am I'm so old school. I find it hard to delete those Amazon downloads. <laughs> even, even though you know, they're in there, even though I know they're in there, even though I know they're the iTunes library is backed up two times. I still, for some reason have trouble deleting that folder. Don't just set a Hazel rule and you don't even have to think. Yeah. About maybe it. that's the best way. Don't, Let just, Hazel do the don't even look at it. <laughs> so we've talked about getting the uh, music into your library. Um, uh, we didn't really talk much about getting movies in. Um, and that's not in the outline, but I'm going to jump off target here for just a few minutes. Uh, if you're like me, you've got kids and you've probably experienced at some point pulling a DVD out of the box uh, to play because kids watch movies over and over again. They're not like adults. You know, when I watch a movie, usually I watch it once and I'm done except for a couple of really good ones. Uh, my kids, however, you get them a new movie and they'll watch it many times and it ends up having peanut butter and jelly on it or something that makes it not work. And see, this is such a foreign concept to me. Yeah. Well, it's a, to me, it's, it becomes a big deal. And then also when you get, you know, the iPads and the iPods and all this stuff you want, you've got these movies and you want to be able to put them on this other media, uh, to, to, so the kids can continue to watch, you know, you know, the Incredibles, you know, for the 40th time. And it's probably bad parenting, but you know, I guess I'm guilty sometimes because they like them. So, uh, and I had to figure out how do I get these DVDs onto your library? And I want to be clear. I'm not saying that I'm taking DVDs that are rented or DVDs aren't mine. These are ones that I've bought. And I, I know that at least some people believe that ripping a movie you've already bought is illegal. And I'm not sure about that. And I don't even want to get into that. Okay. Pretend I'm not a lawyer because I'm giving no advice on this, but I can tell you that I sometimes do rip those movies that we've bought so I can get them on the other devices or I can make sure that they don't, I don't find it one day with peanut butter on it. 
And I, I take a two-step process to do this. The first thing I do is I use a program called Rip It. And it does a really good job of taking a DVD and making an exact copy of that DVD uh, with the copy protection off of it. And I'm not sure how they do it, and I don't really know. But it's nice because then you can watch the DVD that you've purchased on your laptop without having to carry the DVD with you, which is especially nice if you have a MacBook Air (laughs) that doesn't have a DVD reader. Uh, It gives you all the extra content and everything as well. And then a second step that I'll use is uh, a free program called Handbrake, which then will go through and find the track with the movie on it, which is all you really need for you know the kids' movies. They want to watch the movie. Except for the Pixar ones where they have the great shorts, and you want to get those too. And so you can individually rip those into the iTunes format for an iPad or an iPod, and then just drop it in your library, and you're good to go. And that's what was kind of my downfall as I started ripping these kids' DVDs, and my iTunes library became unmanageable because it got so big. Because movie files are huge. So um, when I get these movie files, that's the steps I take. I do I do go rip it, then I go to Handbrake, and then I put it in the library. The last thing I do is I use a program called iFlix, which I'll put in the show notes, which will take a library, and it's got a little Apple script, so you can do it from within iTunes. You right-click it, and then you activate iFlix. And it will go and pull down the cover art and the metadata and the movie stars and the year it was produced and all that great info, you know, metadata. So you can add the data to your file so they look nice. Yeah, are they still developing that? I don't know, but I, I'm still using it. Mm. It works great. I I bought a, I just found out about this one within the last three or four months, and I bought a license immediately because you know we've got. You know, I'm a particular fan of the Pixar movies. I think they're great for kids, but because so many of the kids' movies now are just trash. You know, they're just a bunch of running gags. It doesn't have any story, but the Pixar movies are great. So I wanted to get the metadata on those, but I didn't want to take the time to do it. And I started sniffing around on the internet and found iFlix, and I immediately fell in love. And I did it once on the trial. I still had 10 days or so left on my trial, and I just bought it because it does exactly what they say it does. So, you know, I don't know how all this stuff fits legally. And once again, because I'm a lawyer doing a podcast, I have to be really careful. I don't want anybody to interpret me as giving them advice. But I'm ripping movies that I have purchased. So there you have it. Okay. Well, that may actually move into one of my potential solutions for your problems. Okay, let's hear it. Because you know how I said I, I, I let iTunes automatically manage almost all of my content? Yeah. The exception to that is movies. Okay. Um, because especially now, right now, my primary machine is my MacBook Air. It has this little 256-gigabyte solid-state drive in it. Um, I don't have as massive a movie library as you do, I, but I, I do have um, uh, 70 gigs of um, family movies that I converted a while ago. And um, I've got different clips. And I need, I need to do something more with them. But anyway, they're all there in various versions that I've got in iTunes um, for now. And it's fun to pull up and bring on the Apple TV and, and see these little snippets as they're all organized. Um, but I don't let them um, get consolidated into that iTunes folder because otherwise it would just be you know, massive. And I do have a handful of TV shows and movies that I've bought from iTunes. Although usually I, I the movies I keep, the TV shows I, I delete pretty quickly because I usually watch them and throw them off. Um, but in that case, I, I have an external hard drive where all of these these movies live. And even though your your settings are set 
for the the movies to automatically be filtered into iTunes. What you can do is if you if you pick a movie and you drag the uh, whatever it is the M4B or or whatever the file may be into iTunes, but you hold down the um, option key while you do it. Instead of having the little plus symbol, which will add it to that library, the plus symbol goes away, and instead it just links it to the iTunes library. So uh, that that will override whatever your default behavior is that you have set in iTunes. And I do that with all my movies so that my movies stay linked on this external drive, but not actually copied to my internal folder. Now, I do have to make sure that those movies, and believe me, I've got you know multiple backups of those in multiple places. Um. But, you know, I do have to make sure that when I watch those that that external hard drive is on and attached, but keeps my internal drive from filling up. Yeah, and it makes it easier to load the library, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about playlists. I probably don't use, I don't know, I, I tend to listen to the same music over and over again, so maybe I do use playlists effectively, but maybe I would listen to more use music if I use them more effectively. See, now, playlists to me are, are fantastic because of the situation I was talking about earlier in the show, that we have a family library, and it's got all kinds of music in it. And some of it's stuff I really like, and some of it's stuff I could care less about. So the intelligent use of playlists makes it really easy for me to get good stuff onto my iPhone, for instance, out of our library without having to dig through the entire library. And, and everybody in my family uses these playlists. You know, we just have them named, you know dad's jazz or whatever. And, uh, it makes it really nice. So to set up a playlist, the easiest way is you, there's a little plus sign at the bottom of the iTunes window in the left corner and it adds a playlist and it's just basically like a folder full of music and you can go through your library and drag any kind of media onto that playlist. And then you can later sync it directly to your iOS devices or just have it randomly play music from that folder. That's all fine and dandy. Um, but what's really cool is if you start getting into the smart playlists. So what you, to create one, uh, you can do it up in the in iTunes. You can do it under the, I believe, is it file and new smart playlist. Or you could hit uh, option command N. Or you could hold down the option key and the little plus sign at the bottom of the screen to make a regular playlist turns into a gear. And that creates a smart playlist. And smart playlists are similar to a smart mailbox is like we talked about in the mail episode so long ago. It's a playlist where you can set specific criteria and the iTunes library will go out and find uh, tracks or, or media that matches that criteria and automatically populate it for you. Uh, and there's a lot of great criteria you can use. I mean, you can pick the album artists, you can pick the album name, the bit rate, uh, the number of times it's been played, I mean, the list goes on. I think there's about 30 different criteria, or the year, the beat count. I mean, there's so many things you can do with this. Uh, do you have any favorite smart playlists, Katie? Um, I have a couple, although mine are, are fairly basic. One of my favorite smart playlists I've created for my iPod, I think I've talked about it before, um, for podcasts that I, I listen to in the car. So I've I've created a smart playlist that if the media kind is podcasts, and it's not a movie and it's not a video and the play count is zero, then it goes into this smart playlist that I've named dot podcast so that it's at the top of my playlist. Um, and then I've, I've created a couple of um, Christmas playlists or holiday playlists where if the genre is holiday and I've got somehow I end up with a bunch of garbage um, holiday music in my iTunes library, I should probably just delete it. 
Um, but if the rating is greater than two stars, I, I try to go through and I try to rate everything um, in my playlist. And I'll I'll use that to go play. And then I've got some playlists that are, um, you know, what I call hits and greatest hits. So, you know, hits are pretty much anything that's been, uh, you know, rated three stars or above and greatest hits are anything that's four and five stars. Yeah, I do. I do stuff similar to that. Tell me this with your podcast playlist. So you're driving down the car and one comes on and and you decide you want to move on to the next one. And I guess this is really not doing me any favors talking about this on our podcast, but let's do it anyway. Uh, <laughs> if you decide, okay, I'm done with this one. I want to go to the next one. How do you get that play count to, to one? Because you don't get that play count to one until the podcast gets to the very end. You have to listen to a podcast all the way through. That's the rule, especially go. with Mac power. Users. Exactly. However, if it's one of those that has, um, that for some reason you need to move on, you can drag it to the end. Yeah. And it, and it will go to... Or you can one. fast forward all the way to the end. Yeah, but that doesn't always work for me sometimes. I find sometimes I need to to drag it to the end physically, which you should never do when you're driving. Or you just make a... I make a mental note and then I delete it somewhere in iTunes. Yeah, well, I, I like Smart Playlist. Uh, one of my favorite is what I call Unplayed Gems. And it's kind of a, a little fur, a further step along about what you were talking about earlier with your greatest hits. And that's a... I have some with different genres of music. So I'll pick a genre like bebop and I'll say things with, you know, three stars or better. And then there's a category of for last played. And so I'll say last played is not in the last 30 days. So then uh, it picks my favorite bebop songs that have not, that I've not listened to in 30 days. And it's great because when I go back and sync my iPhone back to the computer, it, it updates that, hey, he listened to Salt Peanuts. Okay, well, that's been played within the last 30 days. So that, that immediately drops out of that smart playlist. But it finds something else where 30 days has elapsed and I haven't listened to it. And so I always have this great source of, of good music that I haven't heard recently. And that's one of my favorite smart playlists. And all these are really simple. So to make them, you go into the smart playlist uh, when you format it, it, it opens up the smart playlist dialog and it's just like, um, the mail, uh, smart folders, or it's like the Hazel rules, the stuff we've talked about prior on this podcast, you hit the plus sign, add as many rules as you want and you're good to go. In fact, I'd really love to hear from the listeners, some of their favorite smart playlists. If you are listening to the show, put it in the comments and we can cover it in the follow-up show because I'm sure there's some great ideas that have not even occurred to me. Yeah, I need to I, see. The problem is, is most of the time I'm listening to podcasts. Well, you got to find some good music too. Yeah, I do. I do. I just I'm. It's a horrible problem to have. I don't commute that much. Yeah. I, when I commuted more, I it was great. I listened to podcasts and I listened to music. And now I don't commute nearly enough. So I uh, I have to go back and and listen. To, it's all I can do to get my podcast listened to. I can tell you, I have. Um headphones in my pocket at all times since I've got my iPhone because I always have an iPad with me and I'm saying iPod with me. I mean, today I was hanging from a ladder stringing Christmas lights and you know, I was sitting there and what was I thinking? You know, plugged yeah, in my headphones really. and I put some good music on some good Christmas music and it was great, you know, so always have some good playlist set up, have some headphones in your pocket. I know it's fun to make fun of the, uh, the junky Apple headphones that come with it, but I, I consider them kind of disposable. I keep them in my pocket and uh, I have good headphones when I want to listen, you know, 
But for just, you know, walking around, sticking them in your jeans, there's nothing wrong with the little white headphones and you're good to go. You got music wherever you're at. I think it's, it's, it's amazing. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I I need to do that more. Okay. What about the genius playlists? Are you, have you played with those much? I do. I like the genius playlist. Sometimes my tastes are a little too eclectic and the genius messes up, but I, I really like the genius playlist when I find, gosh, I'm really in a mood for this song and I'll, 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 I'll find that song that I'm in the mood for and then I'll just hit the genius button and it, it seems to do a really good job. I don't know what algorithm they're using. It seems to get better. I think they're using some of the data they're getting from all of us users, but uh, so the genius is a function that takes whatever song you're currently listening to and finds stuff that's complementary or similar to it. And it's also available on your iPhone and iPod. So um, if you you know if you're in the mood, you uh, you click the genius button and it it puts together a playlist for you, saves you all that time, and I really like it. I think it's great, and it's another thing that you can sync straight over to your your iPhone. I mean, the thing is, we're getting these libraries that are huge and are at least in my case, I couldn't put all my music on my iPhone. So the trick is, how do I get stuff on there that's pretty good, that's always changing? And uh, gives me room to put apps and use other data and take movies and all the other stuff I like to do with my iPhone. And getting a couple of good smart playlists and using the genius function allows you to have some great music all the time. So uh, I'm a big fan of both the genius and the smart playlists. One thing that you can do that's, that's mm, I think maybe iTunes version or iPhone version 3.2 maybe allowed you to do this. Um, is that there is now the option that you can convert higher bitrate songs down to 128. And I do that. It takes, it takes some time the first time you do it, but I do that now with, um, actually I don't know that I got the bigger iPhone, but I ha- I did that in the past when I had the smaller iPhone and when I upconverted my music to 256 and I had the smaller iPhone. Well, I can totally hear the difference between 128 and 256. So I don't like to do that. But- yeah. But if I'm, if I'm on my iPhone, I don't. The, um, now, with the uh, uh, managing podcast, you had talked about using a smart playlist. I think they've got a lot better about managing it under the podcast tab in iTunes now, uh, where I have it where there are certain podcasts that anytime there's an unplayed one, it automatically syncs it for me. And then once it's played, then it goes away. And so I, I manage that from within iTunes. And then there's other podcasts where you can just check the box for the specific episodes you want. Uh, some of you know some podcasts I don't listen to every episode, and or another examples like with the iPad, I love the Don McAllister screencast, so uh, I have it so automatically puts all of those on my iPad, which is the perfect place to watch Don. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, another trick when you're managing your library in iTunes is uh, managing the little disclosure triangle, and the disclosure triangle is that little triangle that points either to the right or to points down. Um, it's easy to get lost if you've got a bunch of different albums or podcasts or whatever in your library. If you hold down the command button and click that triangle, it will open or close all of them. So it makes it easy to suddenly get, you know, kind of, uh, you know, more control out of the chaos that is your library. Uh, That's a nice trick. And then if you command a, you can select all of a particular podcast as well. So uh, there's a couple little keyboard hacks there that may be helpful to you if you're managing your library. Right. And yeah, you can also, I think you mentioned this, manage them either on a, on a global basis or a show by show basis. You know, we've been talking a long time. We should probably go into our next sponsor. We should probably talk about our next sponsor. And that is one password. Um, and I just have to say how cool one password is because this is, this is Thanksgiving week as we're recording this episode. Um, obviously Thanksgiving has passed by the time 
you're listening to this episode, but 1Password sent out a lovely little email to all of their, uh, I guess all of their buyers this week and said, you know, as a Thanksgiving gift from us to you, if you've bought one of our products, we're going to give you one to give away because we are so thankful for our, our, our buyers. So I just, how cool is that? Yeah. It's just such a great product. So, so what is one password? You know, we all have this problem with our computers and that's, we are required to have passwords for all the websites we go to, uh, you know, the user groups we join, the, the banking sites, and it's really difficult to manage all of that. And the, what happens is you end up making just two or three passwords, which means if someone gets your password in any one place, they have it in a whole lot of places. One password solves this problem by allowing you through software to securely manage all of those passwords, come up with very secure passwords for you automatically and fill them in for you automatically at all these websites. It's a fantastic product and it's on your Mac. It's on your uh, iOS devices like your iPad and your iPhone and, uh, no matter, and it's on PC now. So no matter where you go, you can manage your passwords intelligently and control all that stuff, keep it secure, and for just a low price. Uh, one password is $40 on the Mac. Uh, you can get a family license for five users for $70. And there's an iOS hybrid version for 15 bucks that covers both your iPad and your iPhone. Or you can buy the version specifically for the iPad or the iPhone for $10 each. One uh, password is a fantastic product. Uh, in addition to managing your passwords, it also allows you to avoid phishing because one password will only fill in the password on sites where you created them. So if someone does a phishing job where they create something that looks exactly like your banking website, uh, one password will not offer to fill the password in for you there because it's not the, it's not your banking website. So it gives you all sorts of great protection, uh, and great price. And we're really pleased to have them on as a sponsor of the show. Yeah, I've been using 1Password a little too much this weekend with my holiday shopping. It will also fill in credit card information and things like that. Yeah, that's great. You, you can securely keep your credit card on your device. So if you're doing your Christmas shopping, you just click the button. You don't have to pull your card out and start typing in numbers. And that's another benefit, really, is it's not a, it, it avoids key loggers. If someone puts a key logger on your computer, anytime you type in your credit card number, that's going to get caught by the keylogger, but one password just dumps it in as a, I, I don't know what the exact you know phrase would be, but essentially from memory. So there, a keylogger is not going to catch your credit card number. Yeah. Great. Sometimes a little too easy though to enter. <laughs> it's a great company and it's, <laughs> it's run by just wonderful people too. Uh, I met the owners of one password years ago at Macworld, and I was immediately, we immediately became friends. It's just a wonderful company to, to work with and to be a customer of. They, they do a lot for their product. They try and make it the best, and they're constantly updating it. And I'm so pleased to have them as a sponsor of Mac Power Users and thank them for their support. Thank you, 1Password. Uh, oh, oh, and did you mention that if they use the link in our show notes, they can get 20% off the desktop version? I did not. Yeah, so check out our show notes. You can use that link, and you can save a couple of bucks. Because you'll need it after all that easy password and credit card filling. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Um, so we've been we've been talking about a lot of ways to get all these things um, from these little round disc CDs and DVDs um, off of the CDs and DVDs and into your library. But is, is there ever an occasion, David, where you've tried to put stuff on back onto CDs or DVDs from your iTunes library? Uh, very rarely, very rarely. Okay. Anymore, I'm pretty digital. Um, well, it's it's happened to me. 
uh, although not all the time, on, on occasion I have, and, and you can, um, burn CDs and DVDs from libraries. In fact, I just happened to, to help a friend do this recently who um, was having to, to burn CDs and DVDs for an event, and he had to supply the music on CDs. And um, so you can take the music that's in your iTunes library and you can burn back your own uh, CDs or DVDs, or you can make these as audio CDs or MP3 CDs, um, or you can just burn straight data DVDs or CDs if you want to use that as a backup method. It's actually not a bad idea to back up this data. I'm assuming you're already doing it. I hope you're already doing it in a number of different ways. See our backup episode. But having one more backup doesn't hurt. Yeah. And um, so also when you, the process of making a CD that I usually use is I make a playlist. Right. That's how you do it. And then I put the, the actual tracks in there that I want and then you can burn it. It's a, it's a one button process. It's not difficult, but you do lose your metadata. Well, because your your you know plain old CD DVD players aren't gonna yeah aren't gonna do it. I had to do this recently. Well, not recently, thankfully. Um, but I had a rental car for an extended period of time. Unfortunately, when my car was out of commission, and um, it did not have any kind of auxiliary input or any kind of way for me to to connect up my my iDevices. So I was going crazy not being able to figure out how to how to get my stuff into it. So I ended up finally what I did is I burned a bunch of podcasts and a bunch of playlists onto onto CDs and and that that got me through. But then unfortunately when I turned back in the rental car I left the the wallet of CDs underneath the seat of the rental car and funny they couldn't seem to find it when I went back twenty minutes later to get it. <laughs> it's kinda kinda I'm not bitter about that or anything. It's kinda cool thinking about listening to podcasts on a CD. I don't know why. <laughs> <It's> just <laughs> Kind of cool. Uh, it was an act of desperation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, one thing is when you're putting CDs in. Uh, I I used to buy a lot of these. Uh, I bought a bunch of the Harry Potter books on CD. You know, the Jim Dale readings. Oh, we should talk about that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, those are so good. Yeah. So when I imported I them in, into iTunes, I ended up and on the CD they're basically a whole lot of like four minute audio files. I don't know why they did it that way, but they're they're really there's a bunch of small tracks. So then you go to import it into iTunes and you've got this massive number of audio files to manage. And uh, so, so how do you manage that putting audio books into your iTunes library? All right. Well, I've actually got a bunch of these because I, I'm a big books on, well, what used to be books on tape. It's now, now books on CD fan, but there are a couple of ways you do it. First off, if you just want to be simple about it, there, there's some programs that will do it for you where you stick in your CDs and it'll do it automatically. I think audiobook builder, is one of those, and I'll I'll stick a note a uh, 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 link in the show notes. Um, but I'm a big fan of don't pay for anything that you can do yourself. So um, when I rip CDs into iTunes, first off with these book CDs, I rip them in at a lower bit rate because spoken word is is typically requires less less quality. And these CDs, you know, if you remember those Harry Potter CDs, I think they were like 18 to 20 CDs. Uh, it, it was pretty massive. And if you're you're ripping these in at, at full quality, that it's it's going to be gigabytes of data that that doesn't need to be because you don't need full, you know, two fifty six quality for this. So, I usually bump it down to maybe sixty four mono or something like that MP three. But you know, your your mileage may vary. Pick something that you're comfortable with. Um, and then as I'm ripping them in, there's an option within iTunes to join multiple tracks. And it depends on how you want to do it. Um, I've joined I've joined tracks before either by chapter, if if the book is kind of set up that way, 
or by by CD because um, I don't want forty little tiny chapters on a CD because you still got to manage these within iTunes. Um, once you you rip them in, they're going to come in um, usually as uh, whatever MP3 or AAC files or however, and then you need to convert those. Uh, if you want them to show up in that audiobook section, although maybe you don't have to do this anymore, um, you may just be able to get info on them and move them over to audiobooks. But you used to have to convert the file extension to .m4b, but that may no longer be necessary. Yeah, you don't have to do that anymore. Oh, thank goodness. So you okay. open, you show information, Command I, and then on the far right tab, which name eludes me, uh, you can set the media format, and you can pick it as a TV show, a movie. Or an audiobook, and you just select audiobook, and you're good to go. Once you close it, then it'll move those over to the audiobook section. Even better. Um, and then the other, the last thing that I do is under the sorting tab, or under the options tab, rather, um, there are two options that I click. One is to remember playback position, and then the other is to skip when shuffling. Yep. And and that's it. Boom, your audiobooks are are now audiobooks again. Especially when you have a big chapter that you've just consolidated. You don't want it to start over again every time you no. you resume yeah. that track. And I think that's why those chapters are broken up to, like you mentioned, David, to be little four-minute chapters. Yeah, that makes sense. So. Okay. Um, we've been dancing around the subject of multiple users. Let's talk about that in earnest for a while. Okay. Uh, um, you know, generally when you have an iTunes account, you're allowed to associate it with five different computers. Uh which works out just about right in my house. Um, and the idea behind this is really it's supposed to be, I guess, one iTunes account per person. And they can't imagine you'd have more than five computers. So you associate the account, and iTunes will check to see if it's on a song you buy, especially the older songs that have the DRM, are going to check to see if they're on one of those five authorized computers. And if they're not, it's not going to play the song for you. That's their That was their solution uh, for... Uh, getting the contracts and starting iTunes really to begin with, with the music industry. Uh, those five computers, it becomes a problem if you buy a new computer and you forget to deauthorize your old computer. Eventually been there, done yeah, you run out of, of computers that you can use. And in my house, we've got the iMac and in each one of us, we have a bunch of laptops and, you know, so it's easy to run up against that problem. Fortunately, iTunes has a way for you to reset all of them to basically just cancel everything. Um, I even had it that problem once when I had a bunch of problems with the motherboard on a MacBook I had. I brought it in. They um, put a new motherboard or a new logic board in it, which... And they didn't do it before they did it? No, they didn't deauthorize it. I mean, and I didn't think to do it. And because it, even though it was the same computer, a new logic board, uh, iTunes reads as, hey, I'm on a new computer. So, <laughs> and then that that one went bad and I had to get another one on it. And they finally realized that the Mac was just not working and they gave me a new computer. So I, I essentially had four different iTunes authorizations in the course of like two on the weeks. one computer? Yeah. So uh, at that point, you have to call up or you have to click the box in iTunes to basically go nuclear and deauthorize everything. And now you, there used to be a limit. I think you can only do this once a year, right? And they still say that you're only allowed to do it once a year. But I've it's been my experience that if you email them and tell them your problem, that they will do something to make sure you can do it again. I think the idea is that you wouldn't be doing it every month, but you know, I've done it once more than once in the year and I didn't have a problem making it happen. Right. But if you're married, I highly, highly recommend once you push that button that you find your wife's computer 
and immediately <laughs> authorize it. Because if not, you may be woken up in the middle of the night one day because she cannot listen to something. <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't know the path. You, oh boy. Anyway, uh, I think I went a little too far on that one. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you can authorize five computers, but there's no limit of iPods you can, because they're just clients. And, um, I find this very useful because, you know, we've got some older iPods around the house that we still find use for. And it's nice having the music on it. And here's another thing I've done that may be illegal. I don't know. Uh, there's a book on tape I really like, and I wanted my brother-in-law to check it out. And if I had bought it on CD, I could have just given him the CDs to listen to it. But since I had bought it through Audible, that wasn't possible. So I used one of the, the old iPods in the house, and I just loaned it to him for you know a month. And he enjoyed that book. So... You know, there, there's some usage there as well. Hmm. Uh, using multiple computers is great. Uh, sharing the library with one family is, is fine. I don't think even Apple says that's not right. So, uh, but I don't really know. I've never really asked them. But so that's, it's, it's, it's okay as far as I know. And it is kind of funny. Well, who would I, you ask? Email Steve Jobs? I don't know. I, I'm not going to ask. <laughs> but the, uh, it's kind of nice. You do get interesting recommendations and sometimes they're kind of funny, you know, uh, you know, like cause my library, which is usually full of, you know, classical music and jazz. All of a sudden I get, you know, recommendations that I should be buying Lady Gaga and I'm trying to figure out how that happened. Then of course I look at what my daughter's purchased and it makes perfect sense. Hmm. Maybe you should be buying Lady Gaga. I don't think I need to. I think I already have. Oh, well maybe you have. <laughs> Now, if you're, that's a family. If you're in like a roommate situation, I'm not sure you want to share your library. I wouldn't. Yeah. Family's forever. Roommates are temporary. Okay, so you've got the stuff in there. Let's talk about listening and viewing it. I am all about the iTunes ecosystem. I mean, it, it's kind of, you know, some people love it. Some people hate it. I just, it's a reality for me. It's where I am. It's, it's all my stuff is in there and it's, it's where it's always going to be and, and that's just kind of a fact of life. So for me, it's, you know, I'm particularly fond of this new air sharing thing, but I've, I've got everything in iTunes. I've, I've picked up a couple of airport expresses that I've got connected in various places to various speakers around the house. Um, I've got the Apple TV that I, I send things to. Um, and, and for me, I've pretty much got a whole house audio system that, didn't take very long or cost very much, you know, compared to having some electrician come in and wire a whole bunch of speakers in my, in my ceiling uh, to set up. And it works everywhere, which is it works everywhere. All my music is everywhere. That's yeah, really neat. You know, you can just, you can have it anywhere. Now, have you got the new Apple TV yet? I do. Yeah. Okay. So let's tell me how that works. I, I don't have one. It's on my Christmas list. So hopefully I'll get one this year. Okay. So they're, they're good and bad things about it. You know, I, I had the old Apple TV. I had the old Apple TV that only had a 40 gig hard drive. And quite frankly, I was very happy with that because what I would do is I would, um, my music would pretty much stream to it or maybe, maybe some of it would sync to it. Um, but it was always enough room to have some things sunk to it, sunk to it, synced to it on it at any given time. Um, and that was very helpful when I had my main computer's a laptop. So that was very helpful with the laptop because sometimes my laptop's asleep. Sometimes it's not on. Sometimes the lid is closed. Sometimes iTunes not running. And if that's the case, then Apple TV, the new Apple TV doesn't see anything, you know, 
So it's it's basically whatever it can see through Netflix or whatever it can see through the iTunes store. So that is the one downside about the new Apple TV. Um, but other than that, it's pretty cool. It's it's tiny. It's cool. It, I mean, cool to touch. You know, the other thing was a freaking hot plate. Yeah, you you could definitely scramble some eggs on top of my Apple TV. Um, does and I haven't played with this yet, so this is probably not the right place to ask you. But now. If you've got the music on your iPhone, can you just push a button and have it play through the Apple TV? You can now. That's something new with the air sharing. Yeah. I was watching, uh, of course, I tested it with uh, one of Don's screencasts. Yesterday, I had one of his uh, screencasts on my iPhone. Or, I, yeah, it was on my iPhone. And um, I just hit oh, let's, you know, my I made sure my computer was off, the lid was closed, it was not viewable and I on the Apple TV. But I had my iPhone, I said, well, let's just hit this little air sharing button and... Yeah, boom, it was up on my Apple TV. And it was cool because then an email came in and I was able to move over and look at the email on my iPhone and it still continued to play. Yeah, I, I like the way they make all that stuff simple. It's nice. Okay, um, what about um, AirPlay-equipped speakers? Have you played with that? I don't have any um, um, of, of like, I, I think um, a couple of companies are making AirPlay equipped speakers and I don't own any of those yet. I don't know that there are any actually out on the market yet, but I do have speakers that are plugged into airport express systems. Which essentially is the same thing. And that works fine all around the house. In fact, you hit the little AirPlay button on your iPhone or wherever you are and you just tell it where you want it to go. Yeah. And then you've got music coming out of the bedroom or music coming out of the office or wherever you want it. Now, what about backing up your iTunes library? I do this in a couple of different ways. I mean, this is, if you've got a comprehensive backup strategy, this should be taken care of. Um, almost. Because almost. sometimes people have the iTunes, where, where I think this runs into trouble, is where you put your iTunes on an external drive. That's probably true. Because if you have like a time machine or whatever, and you're keeping all your music on your local hard drive, you're good. Because that stuff all gets backed up, you're fine. Um, I had to really think about this when I started putting my iTunes library off the main computer and putting it on the Drobo because then I realized, well, all the stuff that I'm doing to back up my computer, none of that is backing up iTunes. iTunes is just still sitting over there in the corner and I've got a lot of data in iTunes and you know, it's almost even more important than the songs because I could always re-rip the CDs is the play counts and the ratings and all that stuff. Cause that's just my time. Metadata. Yeah. All my time yeah. is in that and I'd hate to lose that. Um, so uh, what I do is I, I just make a copy of the whole iTunes library and, um, you know, I, I have an external drive. I copy on there. I've got a little thing in OmniFocus once a month, you know, back up the Druvi. That's what the name of my Drobo is, uh, back up the data on it. And so I've got a two terabyte external USB drive and I plug it in and I copy a bunch of stuff over the aperture library, the iTunes and some of the other stuff. And, uh, you know, I just make a copy of it and then I put it off site. I give it to somebody to hold for me. So that stuff backed up. And I actually do that with a couple different things. I don't do it on just one because I'm anal retentive. You could probably get away with just one, but I do. You don't just set like a chronosync script up to do that. You know, I used to do that, but it's, it's gotten easier for me now just to, I just wipe that drive out. And then, cause then I can just, I I go into disk utility and I re erase the drive and just, you know, reformat it. And then just, there's just a couple folders. You drag them over and then you leave. Like, you know, when we left for Thanksgiving, in fact, I did that because we're not at home. Because it takes about a day to, to churn all that stuff through a USB 2 port. And um, and it's done. Hmm. And I don't have to worry about not something not syncing or 
having it pop up a dialogue box saying, do you want me to check this or that? I just start over every time and I do it when I'm not around. So it doesn't, you know, interfere with my ability to use the computer. Makes sense. There's other ways to do it though. You can burn CDs and DVDs. Uh, You could back up individual songs, Uh, but I I like the idea of just copying the whole library um, because that way I know all of my metadata is there as well. And if for some reason I lost my library, I would have at least, you know, no older than a month backup that's got everything there. Well, the one thing I do not do, especially even for what's on my internal hard drive, um, is I, a big portion of my iTunes library is podcasts, and including a lot of video podcasts. So I've got over four gigs of podcasts in my library at any given time. And what I do is um, I've specifically excluded, if you go inside iTunes, I've specifically excluded the podcast directory from within that folder because otherwise time machine would be backing that up all the time. Every day there would be constant, you know, multiple gigabyte changes based on what I've added, what I've deleted. And I just, you know, didn't want to use up that space and that time on time machine. So I, and I figured, you know, if I had some kind of catastrophic failure, podcasts are always something that I could redownload because, you know, hopefully that content is still up there and I do back that data up. Otherwise, it's already included in my clone backups and and things like that. Okay. Now, I'd like to go on to another subject that is near and dear to my heart. Uh, It's iTunes management with AppleScript. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, there's a website for this called Doug's AppleScripts, and we're going to put the link in the show notes. It is the site. Yeah, it's the depository of iTunes AppleScripts. I don't think Doug writes them all. I know a lot of people submit them as well, but if you've got... You're an Apple I think Doug has written a lot of them. Oh, yeah, and, and he's got a one paid app on there that I highly recommend called Dupin, D-U-P-I-N. It's 15 bucks, and it goes through your whole library and gets re- removes duplicates. And if you get a problem where you have a bunch of duplicates, um, you could either spend like eight hours of your life sorting it out manually, or you could pay 15 bucks and have it done in like 10 minutes. So I, I bought this years ago, and I, I still use it, and it just came out the new version, in fact, recently. But... So it's a great application, paid for application, removes duplicates. But what's really cool about Doug's Apple Scripts is it's just all these free Apple Scripts that him and other people have written, and you can download them, install them easily in iTunes, and then it it adds a lot of usability to what you do with iTunes. For instance, one of my favorites is the Wikipedia one, where you you activate the Apple Script while you're listening to any song, and you can search the artist or the album on Wikipedia and learn more about them. They've got a YouTube one there that searches YouTube. Um, they've got one that removes characters, you know, like when you get mm-hmm. the data off the internet and like for classical music, I don't know why in particular, whoever types in the data for the CDDB database, they always put the track numbers in front of each one. I guess maybe it's so you can organize it that way. Um, but a lot of times I don't like that stuff. So they've got an Apple script that goes through and eliminates a certain number of characters from the beginning or the end. Um, uh, there's always a problem with expired podcasts. The feed goes bad or something, and you have to go through this whole process of manually resetting it in iTunes. There's an Apple script for that. You know, Doug, you just click it, and it goes through and fixes all your podcasts for you. They've got them to embed artwork. They've got them to, oh, they've got an Apple script here. I'm just looking to find the artwork in Google Images. So I could probably do that a lot faster than the way I'm doing it now manually. Uh, And that's just a few. I mean, there's hundreds on this website. So, Go check it out. And if you're learning Apple Script, I think it's really great too because these scripts are, you know, you can open the script in your script editor and play with them yourself and modify them or just see how they did certain things. And he even has on his site 
script snippets that aren't fully baked scripts, but they're pieces that do certain things that are kind of hard to do with Apple script. So you can bring those in and then you can use that as part of an Apple script, or you can put it in automator and create your own automator actions. It's just, you know, if you're interested in the automation thing and you want to go somewhere where there's kind of a, something already built. So you don't feel like you're starting from square one. This is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And this is another one with an open invitation to listeners. Please in the comments, tell us your favorites because there's just so many here. I know I haven't gone through them all and I, I love to hear what people are using these for. Yeah. I just used one recently. I couldn't decide. I'm a little obsessive compulsive. Um, and I couldn't decide whether I wanted certain artists to be last name first or last name, comma, first name, or just first name, last name. But, um, so I, I had some one way and, and some the other way and Doug, of course, you know, and I didn't like that and that was driving me crazy. So I decided I was going to go all one way. Um, and uh, Doug, of course, quick Google search and found on his website. He, of course, had a little script that I could highlight all the ones that had the way that I didn't want them and put them back the right way. Yeah, that is a little anal retentive there, Katie. <laughs> <laughs> Which way do you think I finally ended up going with? I think you went last name with first name. No, that's how I had it. I, uh, I've been that way for years. And it just it it drove me crazy because I was constantly having to change it because that's not how iTunes does it. Yeah. And everything I downloaded, I had to change. Uh, see, I was I thinking finally, the organizational part of your brain would want last name first. That's how it wanted it. That's how I wanted it. But I finally gave up. I had to finally give in to the way that Apple did it. Sometimes you just have to surrender, don't you? I did. <laughs> I did. Well, you know, our last sponsor uh, is a new sponsor for us, the Omni Group. Uh, they make some of the best productivity software on the Mac, without a doubt. And the application we're going to talk about this week is one of my very favorites, OmniGraffle. And OmniGraffle is a diagramming application for people who don't want to spend years learning Adobe Illustrator. I think it's the easiest way to explain it. It's very easy to use. It uses like the um, the way that you know the Keynote does, where you put two objects and it automatically adjust them and snap they snap to um, you know a measurement between them or, or length. You can make diagrams in this thing so darn quickly. I use it all the time for work because. You know, my day job, I'm dealing with a lot of people that have disputes and problems. And a lot of times a quick diagram really helps organize how we're going to do some strategy in a case or what the relationship is between people. And so I go in these meetings and quite often I'll open OmniGraffle just a few minutes before we go in and I'll put together a quick diagram and drop it into a keynote or put it up on the, the projector or even they've got a version on the iPad I can use. And people are always so amazed and impressed with my diagrams it always i almost it's hard for me to tell them that i made it in just a few minutes you know yeah part of me wants them to think that i did all this work and it's funny i did a mediation presentation like recently and when we finished it the other lawyer said hey you know i'd like to get the number of your graphics department because you know the company's doing your graphics does really good work and it was all omnigraphal i did it you know the night before while watching the red Sox on tv you know so i told the guy he couldn't afford my graphics department <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you could make an offer. Okay, so OmniGraffle 5, the standard version is $100, or you can get the professional version for $200. Um, one last tip with OmniGraffle is it has its built, own built-in diagramming tool because, you know, Omni Group is also the people who make Omni Outline. So it is, in essence, creates a little Omni Outline in the left column of your OmniGraffle, and as you build the outline, it automatically creates a diagram showing the appropriate relationship. So you can have um, siblings and parents and uh, aunts and uncles uh, through the outline process. And it creates this diagram while you're doing it on the screen. It's fantastic. 
especially if you're trying to just put together a quick organizational chart or a chart to show relationship between uh, people. It's a great little feature. And I've done it while I've been in interviews with people. I've just put it together on my screen. And at the end of the meeting, I just flip my screen around and they can look at it. And I say, is this right? And it just, you know, you want to blow somebody's mind. Just do that one time You know, do it for your hmm. boss. And they're going to be like, wow, you know, this guy's really good, <laughs> you know, and it's really not that difficult. So use the diagramming tool. That's my quick tip of the day for uh, OmniGraffle. And we should also mention that there's also a version for the iPad. It's available or in the app store uh, for $49.99. So if you really want to impress them, instead of whipping around your laptop, you can whip around your iPad and show them. Yeah, and I really like the way they did OmniGraffle on the iPad. Um, they didn't try to recreate the Mac app. They really got into the gestures. And it takes a little bit of learning. I mean, because there's some pretty complex stuff you can do with OmniGraffle, you know, with shadows and relationships. Uh, so you've got to learn, you know, where you use two fingers and some other stuff. But if you just spend a little time with that app, and if you're going to spend 50 bucks on it, you probably are going to spend the time to learn it. You'll find that it's really intuitive and it's interesting. It looks to me like, you know, the next, the next big thing with computers, that's how it's going to be. As we get more into these tablet devices, we're going to learn to drive them with our fingers like that. And uh, I think it's kind of a little peek into the future. So that's a great app to look into if you're a, if you're doing OmniGraffle stuff and you can save them out and you can import stencil libraries. I mean, there's so much I could talk about with OmniGraffle. Um, just a great application. Go on the web, check it out. And uh, thanks again to Omni Group for sponsoring the Mac Power users and letting us bring it to you. Mm, great to have them on board. Okay. All right. I think that about wraps us up with all things iTunes. Yeah. And please do. There's a lot to cover. Yeah. Please do uh, uh, sound off in the comments because there's, there's more tricks and Apple scripts and things people are doing and smart lists. And I really do look forward. That's one of my favorite parts about doing this show is learning new things from the listeners. Cause we've got some real smart ones. So uh, share it with everyone. Don't just send us an email, put it up on the comments so we can all uh, enjoy that. We didn't even get into the iTunes store, any ping or any of that stuff. I think that that could be a whole other thing in and of itself. Doesn't that say something though, that we did this two hour show on iTunes and we never talked about ping. <laughs> Not quite two hours, but yeah, no, nah, nah, ping's become a little wasteland. I don't know. We'll see where it goes. But uh, yeah, so that's their social network. And um, I haven't really been real active with it, to be honest with you. I, I'm not a big social network person to begin with. Yeah. Okay. So um, I took it pretty hard after the last multi-market <laughs> uh, I got a well, bunch of emails from people complaining about, you know, uh, stuff on that show. So I'm going to just, first of all, say, you know, that's, that's cool. If you're not interested in that stuff, that's good. But I, I did want to share that because I do think it's interesting and it's, and it's the way of things going. And I do think using a text-based uh, way of doing word processing is very future-proof. So I, I still believe in it. Um, a couple uh, things I need to clarify. Latex is LaTeX. And I should have looked that up before the show, but I've just had a lot going on. And frankly, I didn't have time to, to, to get the proper pronunciation. So it's LaTeX. And... Um, and then there were some questions too about specifically getting the stuff out of Scrivener and you do that in the compile menu. And that's frankly where I do most of my multi-markdown stuff. So people are asking me exactly how do you get it out? Uh, and the compile menu in Scrivener allows you to put it out to RTF, which can go into word or you can put it as HTML and put it into your web. Um, there's also, and I guess I just didn't really make this clear enough. Uh, if you go to Fletcher Penny's website, He's got little applets that you just drag a text file on that creates the HTML version, for instance. And there's a really great blog post on this by uh, our friend Eddie over at Practical Efficiency, um, where he. Practically efficient. I'm sorry, Eddie. 
forgive me. It's practically efficient. And uh, what he did was he combined, uh, he did a Mac power users, you know, um, you know, explosion there. Cause he put uh, Hazel together with uh, multi-marked, you know, and so it followed and it launch bar. So he put it all together. So you, uh, you have Hazel monitor a folder that has a text file in it that automatically runs the application and drops it in. And I couldn't think of a better way of doing it. If, if you're going to be running that outside of Scrivener. So we're going to put a link for that into the show notes so you can get caught up with that. Yeah. And I just have to do my own mea culpa. I, apparently when I was talking about HTML at some point, I said HTTP colon backslash backslash. Ugh. Um, yes, people, I do know it is not a backslash. I'm sorry. Yes. My old, my old programming days were somehow coming back into my head. Uh, I got it. That that being said, I did think that was a pretty good job. We did get a lot of good feedback from it too. So I hope everybody's uh, getting something out of that. And it was really, uh, I want to thank again, Fletcher Penny for taking the time to uh, come on the show. It was really great having him on. And I just really like him as a person, which is always yeah. a nice thing to find. And, and we did get a lot of positive feedback about the Markdown, multi-markdown show. We were just trying to give you an overview um, of the topic. And that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why we did the iTunes show this time, something a little more broad topic. Okay, so in closing, how can you get a hold of us, Katie? There are a couple of ways. First and foremost, you should check out our website. That's at www.macpowerusers.com, where you can find links to everything we talked about in today's episode and our show notes uh, with uh, all kinds of goodies. Also, you can reach us with email to feedback at macpowerusers.com. And you can also leave us a voicemail on our Google Voice account. That number is 706 706- Four five seven six nine three seven or seven zero six four five power. Yeah, we also have a Twitter account. It's Mac Power Users, and I'm at Katie Floyd, and I'm at Max Sparky. Also, uh, check out MaxSparky.com. I've been doing a lot of more work there now that the book is largely done. I've been able to blog more, so I like seeing uh, seeing traffic on the site. And uh, that's MaxSparky.com, and yours is KatieFloyd.me. Correct? That's correct. Lastly, we love iTunes comments. Please keep them coming. It helps us get in front of more eyeballs, which is always a good thing. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Smile, 1Password, and the Omni Group for their support of our podcast. So what's next? Next show, we're going to have our friend Paul Kent, the, uh, the uh, person in charge of Macworld Expo. And he's going to be on to talk about it. But he's also going to be talking about his workflows. Paul's a longtime Mac user. And he puts together this large conference on his Mac. So we're going to be talking about how he uses Mac to, to organize the large conference. And Paul is also a rockin' musician. I hope we can get him to talk a little bit about how he does music on his Mac. Yeah, I would really like to hear that. I would too. So, uh, so it's, it's, it's going to be, we're going to talk a little bit about Macworld Expo. But it's, it's first and foremost, it's going to be a workflows episode with Paul Ken. So if you want to know how he uses his Mac at work, to put on a big conference, to make his music, and to do all of his stuff. This is a good show. You guys said we don't want any more writers. We've had enough writers for a while. We heard you. We got it. Okay, so we're going to be here with Paul uh, in the middle of December. And uh, until then, I hope everyone... Don't forget that disc label stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's the mother load. A lot of software. So until then, everybody uh, be safe. I'm going to forward to see you guys.